2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain. I'm here with the lovely Peter Hart. Hello, hello, hello. Pete, I've noticed you're wearing your Christmas jumper. Bought for me by my lovely daughter, Lily Lou. Lovely, lovely red jumper. Fits a treat.
3: Yeah, yeah, where it touches.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, today, it's rather apt, Pete, because today, for our 101st podcast, it's Christmas. I vote to throw you away. Christmas at Gallipoli, nineteen fifteen. That's somewhat different to Christmas at Gallipoli, nineteen sixteen.
3: Yes, <laughs> well, there's a history of me muddling those two years up, isn't there?
2: There is. Now, after the successful evacuation of Suvla and Anzac, when on was that, the Gary? Nineteenth of December, nineteen fifteen. Right. The Gallipoli campaign. It's it's all but over, Pete. It's, it's all, all but over. over.
3: It, yeah. Uh, have that. Has it been a
2: success? Would you say? <laughs> I think the operations have been a total failure. And who's responsible for that? Well, it didn't really lie with the men, did it, of the ninth Corps and the
3: Anzac Corps. What they'd been asked to do was not a realistic operation of war, was it? It just, you know, impossible. And it's not just that it was impossible. They'd been thwarted by the, well, just the brilliant opposition from the Turkish Fifth Army. And we've said
2: this before, particularly in the defence.
3: Yeah, they were brilliant. Uh, and, And they were beaten. However, the, there is one little... Co- I love this quote that I picked up. Uh, uh, <laughs> we can only agree with the judgment, uh, as I would put it, of some Australian troops. They were arriving at Mudras, having been evacuated from Anzac on the 20th of December. And watching them was midshipman Henry Denham of HMS Agamemnon. And uh, you're going to be him. I remember a voice shouting
2: out, Can we land? Then in a very low tone, No! Then a cry of, can we evacuate? And a tremendous cheer. Yes!
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there's one thing we... Hang on. Anzac, Suvla... Isn't there somewhere else, Gary?
2: Yeah, there's now a question on everyone's mind, isn't there? What's going to happen to the 40,000-strong 8th Corps, who are, are still marooned up, up creek? Up the creek, without a paddle, you might say. And they're at Helles, aren't they? Yeah, they are at So uh,
3: that's the pointy end of the uh, peninsula.
2: Now, it's sometimes forgotten that the Helles garrison, they... they Played their part in the successful evacuation of Souvlas and Anzac, didn't they? How did they do that? Well, the Eighth Corps had been ordered to launch a series of diversionary attacks at Hellas on the nineteenth of December. Now,
3: I would call this a selfless sacrifice uh, on behalf of their comrades. I really would. It's it's, it's that that old thing uh, that it's it, the, 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 it's a really risky operation, the evacuation of uh, uh, Souvlas and Anzac, uh, and, and they they're just doing it. Uh, and, and it's quite amazing that they're willing to do it. But uh, they've also, of course, got their own things in mind. They're trying to improve their own tactical position just in minor places while they're at it. So that's sensible. Now, how many? What, what, what were they planning? It's not just one attack, is it? No, three attacks are made. Although
2: three brigades are involved in the attacks, they're meant to be surgical strikes based on the detonation of mines and utilising as few men as possible, adding up to, to only 800 men.
3: So that 800 across the three attacks. Well, <coughs> Excuse uh, yeah. me. So, l- l- well, let's look at the attacks one by one. The first attack we're going to look at is the attack by One Two Six Brigade, 42nd Division, and that's at Fusilier Bluff. That's where uh, uh, the Nury Memorial is. Um, um, uh, well, it wasn't then, but it is now.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's the furthest point of advance at Gally Spur, isn't it?
3: So what was the plan?
2: Well, the attack would begin at... 14.15, that's quarter past two in the afternoon, on the 19th of December with the detonation of a 600-pound mine some 40-foot under the Turkish trenches close to the British front line at Fifth
3: Avenue. Now, uh, I'm indebted to the work of Mike Crane for a lot of this. He's done a lot of work on it, fantastic work. But small bombing, the, 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 the mine go off, and then small bombing parties would rush forward and seize the resulting crater, and then they'd hold it against all comers, and it'd be an advanced bombing post. What would the all aim of comers?
2: The, the, so they're probably Turkish. Yeah, as and, opposed to all. And comers. what would
3: this uh, advanced bombing post do? <laughs> well, uh, I think to use your technical
2: term, which which surfaces from time to time, it would embugger the Turks. Yes, yeah, it would
3: be just a bloody nuisance. There hasn't been
2: a lot of buggery in our podcasts lately. No, there has No. Now, now, when the uh, bombing parties charged forward, ah, no, disaster. And you're going to be Private William Thorpe
3: of the 1st Ninth Manchester Regiment, the 42nd Division, to tell us more. There were about 40 of us ordered to attack and to take a crater, which a mine was to blow up. But to our surprise, when we got to the Turks' trench, there was no crater. When we got into that open, the Turks gave us hell with their shells and rifle fire. Then at last the order came for the, for the, along the line to retire. It was only with luck that any of us got back safe. It was the artillery and navy that saved us. The attack was a total failure because there was no crater to, to occupy. They'd misjudged it. It didn't blow up and make a crater. It just didn't. I'm just checking the name of this podcast. It's uh, Christmas
2: at Gallipoli. That doesn't sound very Christmassy so far. Yeah,
3: well, th- this is a Christmas period at Gallipoli. Perhaps I should have missed it. <laughs> anyway. I'm so waiting well, for the mince pies here. Yeah, that, they'll come, they'll come. They do come. Uh, so what? Uh, how would you say that
2: attack was? Well, it's a total failure, isn't it? And the second attack, that was made by the 125th Brigade 42nd Division with the uh, detonation of a large mine under the Turkish... Uh, Gridiron trenches on Fir Tree Spur.
3: Now this is just to the right of uh, Gully Ravine and it's next to a, a previous crater called Crawley's Will crate. you be
2: putting a map up, Pete? Uh, no. OK, I might put a map up.
3: Bugger them. That's what I say. Oh, <laughs> you, you said there hadn't been any buggery and now there's two of them.
2: <laughs> now this time there was a proper crater. The main bombing party, they, they rushed out before the rubble had even stopped falling. Ow. Oh, ow. And they captured it with initially little opposition. Now soon, the working parties were hard at work digging a new communication trench from the old British line to the crater. Yeah,
3: that 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 that's uh, obvious. Uh, uh, I wonder what happened then. What could happen then? You're going to be Private Arthur K, First Seventh Lancashire Fusiliers.
2: At night time, the Turks counterattacked. They succeeded in getting back the trench, but we rushed them out again. My arm is sore with throwing bombs at them. I got hit because I was a bayonet man for a team of bombers rushing up a sap. I did not get far before a bullet got me, made a hole in my hat and a flesh wound in my head. It was lucky hit for me as it was in my head. Well, what's of Lancashire? I'm wondering what an unlucky hit would have been. Now, parties of the West Kent Yeomanry they were sent forward as reinforcements to the craters, and the fighting was murderous. And you're going to be corporal godfrey clifford of the first first west kent yeomanry fine body of men gary
3: fine body of men i bought their history recently great we were in an absolutely rotten position for bombing the explosion of the mine had filled in the trench to such an extent that we were compelled to move about on our hands and knees to make things worse a machine gun kept flicking the tops of the remaining sandbags so so after we got the observer in position we set to work to stock ourselves with bombs and then dig ourselves in after about four to five hours' hard work, during which time we were continuously shelled and sniped, our observer noted a movement just in front of us. Word was passed along, and we were ready. They were making one of their many counterattacks. We waited for them to get a little nearer. Then we got the word. Go! The noise was terrific. What, with bursting bombs, whizz bangs rifle and machine gun fire? It was necessary to shout in the next man's ear to get an order passed up. Wow. Now, mm. once
2: again, the Turks are stopped dead. Clifford and his men—they replenished their bombs. Now, supply. why is that
3: important? Why is it so important in this sort of fighting?
2: Well, if they run out, they'd be doomed, as, as bombs were utterly essential in this kind of close quarter fighting. You,
3: want, you once demonstrated. it, I didn't did, you?
2: rather, rather <laughs> superbly, as I remember. <laughs> their other salvation lay. Dig dig, 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 dig
3: dig Diggy
2: to improve their trenches, and after a few more attempts the Turks suspended their attacks. And you're once more going to continue the story as Corporal Godfrey Clifford of the first first West Kent Yeomanry.
3: They'd evidently had enough for the time being and seemed to content themselves with shelling and sniping. It's a rotten feeling when you can hear these big shells come screaming towards you. But lucky for us, they were exploding about 200 yards behind us. I wonder what the people 200 yards behind them thought. <laughs> Nevertheless, we never knew when a lucky shot of theirs was going to put paid to our little party. So this attack, tactically speaking, I don't know as a diversion, but tactically it's a success. They, they do take a tactically significantly, a little bit, tiny bit use. Useful, yeah. Now, third attack. That was made by the 5th Highland Light Infantry. I, I. Oh, I better get ready for that. Of the 157th Brigade. And this was to... Oh, I will have to put a maps up, won't I? You're this up. was the aim of penetrating the tongue of low-lying land behind West... And which other?
2: Krithian. Between West and East Crithianellas.
3: Yeah, that's it. Uh, uh, and also attacking the ground between the West Crithianella and the vineyard. Uh, so we will put a map up of this. Now, several mines have been prepared, but I'm really interested in one. Why am I interested in one? It was a Russian sap. What's a Russian sap, Gary? A uh, Russian sap, it's a bit like a tunnel. They, they dig and they have a thin
2: layer of, of earth which they, they leave to burst through at the last minute. Yeah,
3: that's fundamentally absolutely correct. And it was dug by the engineers. And who was amongst those engineers? Which masked man was amongst them? Well, it was ordinary seaman Joe Murray. So what's the plan in detail? Yeah, it's a, it's a Russian sap, but it's a slightly more sophisticated one in the sense it's a change of level. So what are they doing? Well, they're, they're going to dig down
2: behind a muddy cliff to emerge at the bottom, level with the Turkish trench. And this is what uh, Ordinary Seaman Joe Murray says. My pal and I have been given a job in one of the side galleries being driven towards the galley. According to the latest measurements, we had some distance still to go. After about two hours' work, the Earth sounded baggy and we reported this at once as we knew it meant that we were about to hole. In fact, while we were waiting for the officer in charge to arrive, the Earth gave way and we could see daylight, just a faint glimmer. We at once erected a barricade in case of further falls of earth. If the Turks had observed this opening in the cliffside in between their lines, our months of hard work would have
3: immediately become useless. There was also the potential danger to our own lines. Now, the plan was they go over the top with the detonation of mines at 14.15. Quarter past two, again. Uh, now... This, I mean, Murray was bloody worried, because this is a right cock-up, or could have been, but the Turks hadn't spotted it. Uh, I, mean, I just didn't notice it, and you're going to carry on as Joe Murray. At the thrust of the plunger, the line would go up,
2: and the side of the gully come crashing down. We had three short galleries leading from the main one that we could broken through into the gully in a matter of minutes. An attack from the front was out of the question by virtue of the terrain and the impassable mass of barbed wire. The attack had to come from behind the Turkish front line. The galleries were full of the troops who were to lead the attack, the Highland Light Infantry of the 52nd Division. We broke through into the gully simultaneously with the exploding of the nine mines and the troops rushed through whilst the earth was still showering.
3: Now, this this is an interesting attack. They they rush through, but they they make some progress. But the Turks, their, their resistance is pretty stiff. Uh, and they caused severe casualties amongst the NCOs and, and officers. And what do you think that causes? Faltering. Well, confusion. Yeah, confusion, faltering. You know. They managed to take half the trench they were after, but there's a communication trench running along this tonne of ground. You'll see on the map. And, and, and they, 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 they barricade it off, but they, they just can't get any further. And you're going to be Joe Murray and tell us what happened next.
2: The forward trench changed hands many times. Bombing raids dislodged our men and by the same tactics they dislodged the Turks. The bed of the gully with towering cliffs on either side confined the operation yet some of the fiercest fighting of the campaign took place. Losses on both sides were severe. The battleground was not as large as a football pitch, was covered with barbed wire and there was no retreat for either side. By nightfall, the lads had captured most of the trench, leading to the centre of the machine gun nest, and erected a barricade a few yards from it.
3: Now, I find this interesting, because this is the problem with personal experience accounts. I just want to make this point. Gary, you've been there, you've been on that tongue of land with me. Uh, There's no towering cliff. So, you remember how we come down from the top, and there's a sort of 10, 15 yard, uh, 15 feet drop, which is, is it a towering cliff? No it's not uh, is it the size of a football pitch yeah that's all yeah, right that's, that's and it's, it's the usual thing it's, to him it was a, it, it was there was a steep rise but it's not a towering cliff I so mean, was there
2: a missed opportunity there to have a christmas game of football and <sighs> peace and humanity amongst men
3: now the ball would have burst on the barbed wire oh yeah <laughs> now, oh and the turks and the british would have killed each other
2: to their right between east criteria Nulla and the vineyard. The attack went well, and even better, two Turkish counterattacks are beaten off.
3: So this is again a mixed bag, uh, minor tactical games. Anything of importance, not really. Any, uh, but but, uh, uh, yeah. It, it, these uh, these attacks are pretty trivial, aren't they? Yeah, How they... does this compare to say the fourth of fourth of June or the second or the sec, or the, or the, uh, the second Battle of Carithy, uh,
2: yeah, I mean, they are when you compare them to those battles, but they've still got a real cost. You know, there's a total of around 224 casualties. So that made. must
3: have been, what, it's normally a third. 70, 80 dead, I presume?
2: Now, it's still not known what effect, effect if any, it had on the Turks at Sula and Anzac. But the 8th Corps at As Hellis, a diversion during the evacuation. Yeah, but the 8th Corps at they tried for the greater good.
3: The greater good. Ah, oh, that reminds me of that film. What was that film called? Uh, uh, hot good, Fuzz. The Good and the Great. No, Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz? <laughs> Off
2: us. I'm not going there now. The news of the evacuation of Anzac and Suva was broken to the men at Helis on the 20th of December by their corps commander, Lieutenant General Francis Davis, who you call Joey, I think.
3: Yeah, well, that was his. That was his. And you, you know how I feel about nicknames, so I, I consider myself chastised. Yeah. Um,
2: now right. he he issues a special order of the day, and you're going to uh, to read that as Lieutenant General Sir Francis Davis.
3: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> The position at Hellas will not be abandoned and the commander-in-chief has entrusted to the 8th Corps the duty of maintaining the honour of the British Empire against the Turks on the peninsula and of continuing such action as shall prevent them, as as far as possible, from massing their forces to meet our main operations elsewhere. He means Palestine, Mesopotamia the rest of it. Uh, This is bollocks. Um... And uh, that, uh, in retrospect, but at the time, everybody, every single man of the 40,000 garrison of Helles must have thought, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen next?
2: Well, yeah, indeed. And back home, the government, they wanted uh, Helles held for the present.
3: After the evacuation. So they, they, they made no plans. They're going to nope. evacuate Suvland and Anzac. But what then does what? that mean?
2: Hold, uh, holding what for the moment. Mean, what does Gary? it mean?
3: Well, does it mean, let's have a look. Does it mean for the duration of the war?
2: I don't know. Does it mean two new operations could be launched in the summer
3: oh, Are they going to land a whole more troops? But how are they going to fit in? Uh, what's the point of leaving men there, Gary? What is the point? Well, well especially
2: when you consider the winter weather and the... Uh, de- well, uh, Disease? Depredations of disease is what oh, you put, Pete. Depredations. Disease. I just
3: want to see if you could say depredations
2: now, also the senior service, the Royal Navy, did they really need Helles to assist them in the war against German submarines in the Mediterranean?
3: Oh, I, don't, I don't think it's bollocks. Uh, it's to try and stop them using Constantinople as a base, I suppose. Uh, uh, the, 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 the real problem, and the fact underlying everything, is the Turks can now concentrate their forces. Over 100,000 men of the 5th Army can concentrate against the, the 50,000 of 8th Corps of Helix. So couldn't they just launch an unstoppable offensive? Given time, They could. Uh, Do they need that?
2: No, they could just play the, the long game, couldn't they? Be patient. And use bring the, up the guns? He, yeah, they had heavier guns and superior ammunition. Why now. did
3: they have heavier guns well, and superior ammunition?
2: Because recently they were able to bring the guns and ammunition from Bulgaria.
3: Through Bulgaria, yeah. from, from Austria mainly. Yeah. But other places, better ammunition. Is this ammunition that goes bang? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a real change, frankly. Yeah, it is. Now, what, so what's the background to this? Uh, as soon as Suvran Anzac has been uh, evacuated, there's some more changes in high command uh, General uh, Sir Charles Munro is ordered back to the Western Front. He's going to take contra- uh, command of the First Army. But there are other changes. Well, well, one's a continuation. What happens to Birdwood?
2: Well, Lieutenant General William Birdwood, he continued to command the Dardanelles Army, uh, but he'd be under the distant supervision of General Sir Archibald Murray, uh, who was to add nominal command of both Gallipoli and Salonica.
3: Yeah, you know, which that, started. That's yeah. now starting from uh, his headquarters in Egypt. Uh, But that's not quite what happens, is it? Because what happens... uh, Because there's going to be a delay before um, Murray gets to Egypt. So what is the de facto position throughout... January, which of course is a crucial period. Well, it's decided that Monroe should remain in post,
2: based at Mudros, until Murray actually reaches Egypt.
3: Now, whatever they're going to do, they're going to have to reorganise Hellas because but why? 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 Well, it's in it's in a complete
2: state, isn't it? Both the Royal Naval Division and the Forty Second East Lancashire Division were totally buggered. Uh, By each other? Not only by each other, by uh, by the Turks as well. (laughs) And they were desperately in need of a lengthy period of rest and recuperation. With a chance to rebuild their uh, depleted ranks. There seems to be quite a lot of buggery going (laughs) on Yes, after your
3: remarks. Now, it's... uh, Well, the Royal Naval Division. Um, Now, uh, it's decided that the 13th Division, who's just been evacuated from Souffle, uh, would be sent to relieve the 42nd Division. What's going to happen to the poor old uh, R&D? Well,
2: they've got to uh, hang around and wait for their relief. And, in fact, they they moved to take over areas that were uh, the responsibility of the French.
3: Yeah, because what's, what's the problem with the French? What's going on there?
2: Well, they're, they're, you're right. It's a further complication, isn't it? The attitude of the French, they they wanted both the First Division and their batteries of guns back for redeployment to Salonica as soon Because that's as possible. their priority
3: now, isn't it? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And as a result, the Senegalese battalions were withdrawn from the peninsula between the uh, 12th and 22nd of December.
3: That only leaves the French colonial brigade. Now, they're just up on the cliffs above Kereb's dare, that very deep valley thing that you love so much when we go there. I do we, enjoy that. We nearly kill ourselves climbing out of by special routes. Thanks to dadders. Yeah.
2: Now, in the end, the French artillery had to stay for not only were they irreplaceable... You mean because they are the main
3: artillery force for the Allies?
2: But also, their departure would be a sure sign to the Turks that the evacuation was imminent.
3: Why are they taking them banging things away? Yeah, yeah. So, immediate action. uh, So, uh, because of this, the two brigades of the 29th Division who've just been evacuated from from, uh, Suvila, are sent to join uh, the 87th Brigade of the 29th Division, which is already at Hellas. So the 29th Division is reunited back at Hellas. But
2: hang on, the 29th Division, isn't that also in a terrible condition? Yes, the immortal
3: 29th Division, Gary...
2: Immort- yeah, well, they said they're anything but immortal by this time, aren't they? They're meaning that the division
3: still exists in name. They've been shot to pieces about four times already. and There's not many people left who were there at the start of the campaign. Uh, uh, this isn't a criticism of the 29th Division. They, they'd fought hard and well. Um, now, uh, how do you think the men of the 29th Division react? And, and we're going to use one of our favourites uh, uh here. Uh, it's a brilliant diary of Gallipoli. I think it's called Gallipoli Diary, and it and you're gonna be Captain John Gillam of the Army Service Corps, divisional train, twenty ninth division. We learn that the eighty six have passed Hellas, and soon we are to follow. Good lord, this
2: is the unkindest cut of all. So we are not done with it yet. Well, I don't suppose the Turks
3: will let us get off scot-free this time. You see, he's already looking to evacuation. And anybody in their right mind is looking to evacuation by the time. And he's also making reference to the fact that
2: the Turkish can't be fooled a second time, surely.
3: What does he mean by the unkindest cut of all, Gary? Um, I don't know. Now, uh, all eyes, where where, where they turn to... Well, everybody's looking to London, aren't they? they?
2: They they would make the final decision: should they stay or should they go? Should I stay or should, should
3: I, I go? Go! Hey, and, and
2: also they haven't got the luxury of, of prevaricating about it. You know, it's well, they've
3: prevaricated enough before making the original decision for, uh, from August through to December. Why is it so particularly urgent now in December?
2: Well, the weather conditions were liable to get much worse in January and February of nineteen sixteen.
3: Not nineteen fifteen.
2: And of course, the Turks—they knew the Turks were busy moving their divisions and guns to Helles. They knew so that.
3: They just don't have time for prevarication this time. They had whatever decision they're going to take, they're going to take quickly. Yeah, but uh, could they? Did yeah. they have the guts for it? Well, they are politicians. Uh, now, now, the, the Turks—they've now got the freedom to focus
2: their energies on Helles. And uh, they, they were aware that Hellis was going to be uh, likely to be evacuated, but they didn't know when. Ah. And you're going to be General
3: Otto Liman von Saunders of the uh, headquarters Turkish 5th Army. It was thought possible that the enemy might h- hang on for some time. That could not be permitted. Hence, a plan of attack on the enemy's position at Sedelbar was at once taken in hand. So they are planning for an attack. It's it's just when that was a great accent. Well done. Now more and more Turkish guns are, are being put into the line at Hellas. Uh, the level of shelling's increasing all the time, and it's evident that they've got more guns and better, heavier ammu- heavier guns, heavier ammunition. Uh, there's there's lots of evidence of this, and one of these is twentieth uh, of December. Lieutenant Henry Henri, sorry, Henri Fuel. Uh, Well he has a
2: terrible experience While manning his observation post He's on the heights above Keres there And he's looking across the valley towards Achibaba and a few Shells had landed nearby but then There's disaster and you're Going to be Lieutenant Henry Henri Forel of the 52nd Battery
3: 30th Regiment Corps Expeditionnaire d'Orient Suddenly The characteristic Roar of another shell Approaching rapidly The whistle grew to a crescendo. Was it going to pass over us? To my sorrow, the answer had no sooner crossed my mind when the answer came. It was a direct hit. It had a terrifying rending effect on the paltry roof protection, just sixty centimetres above my head. The.
2: Plushcare.com slash earth
3: Seemed to open like a volcano. In a flash, my shelter overwhelmed as huge stones crashed down on my men and on me. Struck violently. Stop laughing. All over the left-hand side of my body, I was thrown to the ground. My telephonist, De Chambourg, fell across me and we were covered by an avalanche of building materials and rough stones. We were enveloped in acrid fumes, unbreathable, locked in like the night. A few moments passed following this incredible explosion. The melanite fumes slowly dissipated. I hadn't lost consciousness, despite the pain I felt. I was buried alive, not able to move, buried in a mass of earth and stones as in a straitjacket. The blood flowed freely from two wounds in my skull, covering my face. And in me. Well, now,
2: when rescued, he had several, uh, sorry, severe head wounds, a broken arm and a splinter wound in his left leg, and his companions were dead.
3: Yeah, that's not so funny, his camera's... But uh, he was he was lucky to survive, having been unlucky to be hit. I always think that about these things. Uh, um, now, this is just one incident in many, up and down the line, the higher quality ammunition, the heavier guns, uh, the whole of Hellas. Is it all within range, Gary?
2: Yeah, there's one or two places deep inside Gully Ravine, perhaps, where where you would be safe, but the rest of it would completely uh, within view.
3: So does that mean all the depot stores and logistical bases on the beaches? Well, everything. Are they...
2: Yeah, I mean, everything would come under an increasing level of concentrated fire.
3: Now, you're going to be Captain John Gillam, who is, as you know uncomplaining, although he's an officer, so occasionally he complains.
2: Every time I stroll over to the supply depot from our office on the cliff, overcomes a shell either from a howitzer on Achi Baba or Quick Dick from Asia. I prefer the howitzer. It gives you a chance to quickly look around for the nearest dugout and dive in, whereas Quick Dick with its boom whiz bang is on you before you can count two and leaves you almost gasping, wondering That you are still standing alive instead of flying through the air in little bits. It makes everybody
3: living on the beach very bad-tempered. That's W Beach he's talking about. and uh, Nice to see uh, people being bad-tempered. I always like that. Um, Now, uh, to try and persuade uh, um, the Turks that they're staying, because that's all part of it... uh, the, 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 the Eighth Court tries to maintain an aggressive profile. So there's a few minor operations planned. They increase sniping and, and bombing, uh, you know, from bombing posts, that kind of thing. And on the morning of 23rd of December, there's an act of absolutely stunning courage. Now, could you just, just, this isn't funny. This, this is quite sad. And, and t- tell me what happened, Gary. That, well, that. This,
2: this is, Lieutenant, you're referring to Lieutenant Victor uh, Smith of the 1st 5th East Lancashire Regiment. Now... He was the uh, Brigade Bombing Officer of the 126th Brigade and he'd organised a bombing party which was engaged in throwing bombs at Turkish positions close to the British front line on Fusilier Bluff. Now, it had been raining, uh, leaving the ground wet and slippery. Smith stumbled and fell, dropping the lit bomb he was in the act of throwing. He shouted a warning and leapt towards the cover of the nearest traverse. Then, having seen that some of the men would never make it to cover in the confusion... Smith turned back and dived on top of the bomb seconds before it exploded, killing him instantaneously.
3: So he absorbed the power of the explosion and the other men were escaped unscathed. Now, this is startlingly brave. You might say it was his own fault, but it, it was an accident. He'd escaped and then he yeah, I mean, he takes responsibility. I think it's it is. stunningly and brave.
2: Brigadier General Arthur Tuffnell he writes to uh, Victor's father, William Smith, who was the Chief Constable of Burnley, shortly after taking over command of the brigade, confirming the circumstances of his son's death and that his name had been put forward for the Victoria Cross and you're going to be Brigadier General Arthur Tufnell, 126th Brigade, 46th. Normally I'd
3: use a brigadier's voice, but uh, this is too serious and I think this is quite sad. He says this, possibly, he may, he means Victor, he may have thought that he could still extinguish it. Possibly he had no time to consider whether there was such a possibility. More likely, he deliberately forfeited his life to save others from death and injury. Whatever his thoughts and and decision may have been, his act was one of bravery such as I personally have never heard surpassed. There was only one result possible. The grenade exploded with all its force and his life was sacrificed to save others. I'm afraid no decoration can compensate for the loss of an only son, but my explanation must be a consolation to you in itself. And it must make you one of the proudest men in England when everybody reads a story and couples the the memory of his name with that old and honoured phrase, a soldier and a gentleman. Now, I think that's a justified tribute, but I notice who he's writing to and I notice that there's somebody else in this family. I I do just think that he's writing there to the father. Is there anyone else in the family? Yeah, you might wonder what uh, Victor Smith's mum, Louisa, thought about it. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Anyway, right, Ch- change of mood. Change of mood. That happens. Twenty third. Uh, Christmas comes, Gary, but once a year. It often seems more often to me. Um, uh, and there's not a lot to celebrate, is there at Hellas? Um, it, we've talked about Christmas before. It is, of course, the festival of peace, love, and understanding. Although not in my, not in our houses. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, put myself off. It starts badly. Lieutenant Douglas Gerald, one of our all-time favourite things uh, of the Hawk Battalion RND. Now for him (laughs) it becomes evident that for some reason the Turks are not taking our Christian festival entirely seriously. I've no idea what that could be Um, and uh, he, he says this. On Christmas Eve the Turks put up the heaviest bombardment
2: on our section that I had experienced and inflicted Despite the dugouts, very severe casualties. The disadvantage of deep dugouts is the extreme unpleasantness of leaving them. It's relatively easy to be conscientiously brave when you have no alternative, but <laughs> excuses for remaining under cover where cover exists are damnably easy to find. Fortunately, I was robbed of mine because the telephone to the front line from battalion headquarters was 70 yards away from our headquarters mess and it had to be answered. I know nothing more unpleasant than walking along a trench which is being shelled by howitzers. The bullet which kills you is inaudible, so they say, but the howitzer which kills you is unmistakable. You can hear it coming down for some seconds and you know whether it is going to be close or not and no parapet or trench can save you, so you just wait or walk on, feeling extremely curious as to (laughs) what is going to happen. One's curiosity, I found, is strangely mundane. Curiosity about the next world is rare, and yet perhaps the most interesting thing of all is that no one has any sense of grievance against the enemy for trying to kill him, as he tried so very hard on that unpleasant Christmas Eve to kill us. And after it is all over, one has much the same feeling of exhilaration as after a cold bath.
3: You like a cold bath, don't you? Who doesn't? It's invigorating.
2: Now, at least the Christmas day itself starts well for Lieutenant St John French Blake. And you're going to be Saint, uh,
3: Lieutenant Him. Saint John French Blake <laughs> of the Royal East Kent Yeomanry. I am. And uh, we're now we're now to Christmas Day itself. People, this is the Christmas period it's going to be. So this is this is actually the day. Here we go. Well, actually, we start a little bit earlier. Here I am at six fifteen on Christmas evening in Trolley Ravine, writing you these few lines, sitting in my dugout on the support line, and wondering how you have spent Xmas. Not not Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Not knowing, I will tell you how I spent mine so far. Kept a watch last night, that's Christmas Eve, till 12.15, so I saw Christmas Day in. Then got up at 6.15 for stand two. Wished the men a happy Christmas, though it seemed rather a farce. Breakfast at 8.30, shave and wash. And then, after another walk up the fiery line, sat in the sun and read. It was simply lovely, as hot as can be, and the view magnificent to see the sun rising and shining on Imbros was too lovely for words. A lovely pink, and then gradually getting daylight. There you go, that's the start of his day. Yeah, but also, far from home, the festive season, it could be a little bit depressing. Now, you're going to be Lieutenant Norman King Wilson, another favourite of ours, 88th Field Ambulance Royal Army Medical Corps.
2: Christmas Day in the Trenches. It's Christmas Day in the Workhouse. A fitting title for an ode by Dante. Morning found us wet and cold, without a fire to warm us, without change of clothing or hot food or drink, a Christmas without home, friends or cheer. Somehow, the thought was so melancholy, while the fact in itself was so small. Why should the 25th of December be any harder than any other day spent under the same circumstances? The Padre and the Men looked so disheartened and sad that I could not resist the temptation to laugh. There was a sardonic humour in it all. I do like that,
3: <laughs> the of <laughs> <laughs>
2: That'll teach you. Now, no. Lieutenant uh, Esmond de Wolfe also found a degree of wry humour in the celebrations, and you're going to be uh, Esmond of the Army Ordnance Department, 8th Corps. Now,
3: <laughs> this is... Uh, what do you never give the British soldier...
2: Uh,
3: alcohol, largely. (laughs) And this is... There are some other things. (laughs) This is a testament to it. My colonel sent for me and said he would like a carol sung on Christmas morning, and could I arrange. I spoke to the regimental sergeant major, who said he would do his best. I love that. Firstly, the the passing of the buck. (laughs) He found four men to sing. The officer who ran our mess, Rudd, had scrounged a jar of rum, which he was keeping for special for a special celebration on Christmas evening. About 7am on Christmas morning, we were awakened by the sounds of Hark the herald angels sing. The colonel popped his head out and wished them a Merry Christmas. And Rudd was so pleased that he got the jar of rum and said, Take a tot and go back to your lines. Not a bit of it. After a healthy swipe, they started off, While well, shepherds watch their flocks by No, Rudd was annoyed, but handed them the jar and said, Now, have another, but for heaven's sake, go away. Again, no. They started off with another carol. Rudd was so wild that he foolishly gave them the jar and sent them off. In a few minutes, they were dead drunk. They woke up next morning, just in time to go on duty, having missed all the celebrations. They vowed never <laughs> to sing again. I think they missed the... Under- never it was- to sing again? It wasn't the singing that made them have a terrible hangover, would you say, Gary? Well, it depends on how bad it was. <laughs> I'll bet it was bad. Now, some of the celebrations,
2: they were a bit more basic, and I'm going to be Trooper Edwin Pope of the 1st Firth West Kent Yeomanry. On Christmas Day, we catapulted over a tin of bully beef for a bit of fun. Three or four days later, it came back to us. It was weighted with mud and stones. Inside, there was a message written in good English. We are sorry you are leaving. We'll meet you again at Suez.
3: They knew that we were leaving. Of course they... I mean, it must have been fairly evident. But there's more serious developments that day. Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood, Dardanelles Army came ashore at Hellas for a conference with Lieutenant General Francis Davies, 8th Corps, and General Jean-Marie Brulard, 1st Division Corps Expeditionnaire des Dardanelles. Now, what's the main topic of their, their chit-chat?
2: Well, they were going to have some delicate negotiations about the remaining French units ashore at Helles.
3: So that is the, uh, the uh, Colonial Brigade up on the right. Uh, Position above, of honour. <laughs> is ever above Kerebster and their artillery. Now, no. Birdwood,
2: he plays a blinder, and you're going to be Lieutenant General William Birdwood of HQ Dardanelles Army.
3: I propose to take off the whole of his infantry before moving a single British soldier so that he should suffer no loss. An announcement which filled him, i.e. the French General, with delight and gratitude. But I must have all his seventy-five, so seventy-five millimeter guns placed under the orders of my brigadier, brigadier general Royal Artillery to be evacuated Paris What's that mean, Gary? Uh, along to, at the same time yeah. with the British guns. At first, he threw up his hands in despair. Parbleu! Moi, sois cans, Non, mon general. Non, non. No, 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 That means no. He could not bear the mere idea of being parted from his beloved 75 millimeters, and he was sure that his government would never approve. However, after some persuasion, he proved amenable. He also had half a dozen heavy ship's guns which had served him well, but which were now nearly worn out. I pointed out that he would never be able to embark these and he at once agreed to blow them up and then having promised with a side to put his 75s at my disposal he gave me a dejeuner of a, an excellence that could be riv- rivalled nowhere else in these latitudes and all was well. Oh, a good breakfast then, eh, Gary? Or lunch even. Yeah, oh, petit, oh yeah. Oh, right, no, yeah. Now what, uh, um, I mean, we've heard of those guns, haven't we? Those, we have Where uh, yeah. of those guns? Not the 75s. But no, no, but the big guns. Uh, they weren't ships guns, were they? No. They and were-
2: they're still there. Well, four of them are still there. Yeah. Uh, some are spiked better than others.
3: Yeah, one of them. Yeah. Well, spiked's not the word. They had the bloody ends blown off, didn't they? They did. Uh, except one didn't. Uh, and we might put a photograph of them because that's I really I think we good. should, actually. I think we should. we will remember that? You will.
2: Now the urgency of evacuation could perhaps have been explained in succinct terms to the politicians Would by, this involve swearing? by one Corporal Harry Askins of the Portsmouth Battalion. Royal Naval Division. Now, in the couple of days immediately following Christmas, the Turkish shelling heed experience was utterly terrifying, and I'm gonna be Corporal Harry Askins of Portsmouth Battalion. I thought that I had lost all fear of shells. Those two days completely changed my views and put a fresh fear of death and mutilation into me and in everybody else. From noon, when the rain ceased, to 3pm, we were subject- subjected to the worst bombardment that I had ever been in. It wasn't the quantity of the shelves that mattered so much, it was the quality and weight Great big howitzer shells that came down on us at an angle of about 60 degrees and which made a noise similar to an express train dashing at full speed through a station. Every other noise was swallowed up in that great terrifying roar. bangs kept bursting on the parapet but we never heard them and then when these big ones burst it was more like an earthquake and an eruption at the same time. The earth would tremble and shake, and where the shell had burst, a great column of earth and smoke would shoot up a hundred feet into the air. Long after they had burst, huge lumps of earth and iron casing kept whizzing down to earth at a terrific speed. Some chaps, who before this were apparently nerveless, were now shaking with fear, and everybody had a tendency to bunch together and keep moving up and down a trench.
3: I was terrified, but tried hard not to show it. Now it's interesting because we've just done uh, the Royal Naval Division action on the 13th of November in the Battle of the Ankh. And what did we say they hadn't really experienced when they got there?
2: Well, it, 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 yeah, if you're
3: comparing it to the Western Front, then, then it, 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 there is no comparison, actually. So even this increased level is still nothing compared to the Western Front. But things are comparative, aren't they? And yeah. for him, it was much worse than it had been. And he,
2: he's right. He's saying it's it's the worst he'd experienced to that point. I'm and he's sure right. if he if he makes it to the
3: Western Front, then I'm sure he's going to experience a lot worse. Yeah. Now, the, the things also uh, the, 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 there's a, a big increase in, in 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 all levels of Turkish aggression after Christmas, uh, just after Christmas. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant. I've got his name, J.S. Miller. Um, I don't know his uh, anyway. Second Lieutenant Miller, who is which he was with the First Fifth KOSB. And he says this, The rifle and machine gun fire from the Turkish positions appeared to increase, and reconnaissance and fighting patrols became more active, probing our positions with determination and vigour. These attempts were beaten off, but occasional penetrations were made into our lines. Whoopsie. The casualties were again steadily mounting. Now it's becoming evident to us why this sudden increase of activity by the Turks... Obviously, the Turks are now bringing troops to the Hellas front, and we were beginning to feel the effects. So, Christmas at Gallipoli is a dangerous time. They call, by Christmas we we're looking at the the big the twelve days of Christmas sort of thing. It, this is um, they haven't even taken the decorations down, and the Turks are making absolute clear that they mean business soon. Um, now. <laughs> So what can be done? Has the government got off its backside, its lazy, stupid backside, and made a decision, Gary?
2: Well, it's, it's accelerated over the Christmas period by the appointment of Lieutenant General Sir William Robertson to the position of Chief of the Imperial General uh, Staff. On now, the that 20- was just before, wasn't it? That was 23rd. 23rd of December, 1915. Uh, now, Robertson... What's uh, he like? He's an unbiddable, strong-minded individual, and he's totally committed to the Westerner camp, intent on emphasising the uh, primacy of the Western Front. And uh, I'm going to be General Sir William Robertson of the You're Imperial General You're going to sum General it up
3: Star- for us, aren't
2: you? It is one of the first principles of war that all available resources should be concentrated at the decisive point. That is, at the place where the main decision of war is to be fought out. There may be a difference of opinion as to where that point should be, but there should never be more than one such point at a time. And once the selection is made, no departure from the principle just mentioned is admissible, except A, when it becomes necessary to detach troops for the protection of interests vital to oneself, for example, the Suez Canal, or B, when by detaching them, the enemy will be compelled, as a countermeasure, to send a still larger detachment in order to protect interests which are vital to him. This principle, as old as the hills, had been inexcusably violated in 1914 and 15, and however much we might afterwards try to mitigate the evils resulting therefrom, they
3: could never be entirely removed. I think he's spot on here. We both agree with this, and I think most historians now do. Now, you're going to be Robertson again. You're going to uh, show... I mean, he had to sort out, therefore, one of those things, the worst thing in 1915, is Gallipoli. And he has to sort out the inherited chaos.
2: The main question was what useful purpose would be served by keeping a detachment at Helles, now that the troops had been withdrawn from Anzac and Suvla? Clearly, there was none, and to continue hanging on to the place merely because we were afraid to leave it was not only a waste of men, but would be a constant source of anxiety. On the 28th of December, five days after becoming Cigs, I placed before the War Committee a memorandum drafted for me by Colwell, who was acquainted with my views, advocating the immediate and total evacuation of the peninsula. Lord Kitchener supported the recommendation. Evacuation was approved. The necessary orders were
3: dispatched the same day. Now, that's, that's what I call action. Five days, and he sorted the whole bloody lot out. Uh, once they got the telegram, 29th of uh, December, Monroe, who, remember, is still in command of, S- of Salonika and Gallipoli, the overall commander, he calls a conference at Imbros to confirm the evacuation plans. And um, what's he basing them on?
2: Well, it's based on the subterfuge that they'd successfully employed at Sugla and Anzac.
3: So that's the periods uh, streaming repeat, uh, the units away gradually removing them ready for an evacuation and it, that would be on the 8th of January 1916
2: ah uh, but this is another story we're talking about yeah, Christmas, and we're yeah. not
3: going to deal with that because you can listen to our evacuation of Helles podcast, and of course our evacuation of Sue Renanzac podcast, and they're still available on uh, to internet. I think I don't know idea on to it? internet on to internet. Now, well, let's some um, because we're looking at the Christmas period. Um, uh, let let's go back to our favourite. Let's go back to one young officer who's at Helles and he sums up the general attitude that Christmas. Uh, and you're going to be Lieutenant Douglas Gerald of the Hawk Battalion RND. Few military histories, which record so
2: proudly <coughs> excuse me, he got quite emotional there. Oh, Obvious, yeah. Few military histories, which record so proudly and so truly the enthusiasm of all ranks of an army at the beginning of a campaign, give equal prominence to the no less fervent longing of all soldiers for a period of rest after months of continuous fighting. To live on the Gallipoli Peninsula was to be continuously, not merely within effective range, but under fire. Not a day passed but that some camp was shelled. And all the beaches, while the daily fatigues were as often as not, carried out under indirect rifle fire. The prospect of a temporary change from these conditions could
3: have been nothing less than joyous in the circumstances. So what he's looking for is a late Christmas present. As far as he's concerned, a late Christmas present would be to evacuate Gallipoli. There's only the one question is, could they get away with it? And as I said, you'll find out in our podcast, Evacuation of Gallipoli. Or... In some, and there's another way of finding out. How else could you find the end to the story out, Gary? Well, you could buy your book, Pete. What's
2: it called? Uh, The Evacuation of Gallipoli. That's an imaginative title. It is, but it is an area that that is often not uh, dealt with, uh, uh, perhaps as it should be. This is a book entirely focused on the evacuation, and it's available directly from you yourself. You'll put a link up.
3: Here. I'll put a link up, or you could, if you're in Australia, you can buy it from LivingHistoryTV.com, or other but, parts of the world, or, or other part. Well possibly other other parts of the world. if you're in
2: the uk the, the the quickest and easiest way is to to use the link that
3: you are putting up yeah, i think it's 12 quid and that's postage included isn't that nice i'm so lovely thank you very much gary i'd like to wish you oh, a happy christmas, christmas that recreates all the joys of a christmas at gallipoli i want you to share those joys
2: you're wishing me dysentery
3: well yeah dysentery and being shelled and just misery thanks mate cheers
2: thanks for listening follow us on twitter and facebook to learn more about each episode and if you'd like to support the podcast you have a couple of options you can buy us a coffee at me coffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook
1: and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?